Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, November the 5th. First, I'll be talking to Dom Holland, the Aussie entrepreneur and co-founder of American payments company Fast, which provides a single-click checkout button, freeing customers of the need for passwords or the need to re-enter personal details when they check into websites to buy services and products. And I'll be talking to BIS Oxford Economics Chief Economist in Australia, Sarah Hunter, about how the end of lockdowns will affect the jobs figures. But now let's talk to Dom Holland. Well... Dom, tell us about your company, Fast. Yeah, so uh, we're building the world's fastest login and checkout. It's a one-click checkout for every website. So that actually would eliminate a lot of problems, wouldn't it, uh, with e-commerce? Yeah, you know, we're focused on consumer problems. Uh, the company was born out of uh, me seeing my wife's grandmother just not be able to order groceries online. She forgot a password and just couldn't order groceries. One of Australia's largest companies couldn't figure out how to take I couldn't figure out how to take a couple of hundred dollars from granny's credit card without some arbitrary string of text, which had nothing to do with the transaction. So I think there's a huge group of people who one find, you know, the internet and e-commerce just too difficult. Uh, and two, uh, there's the rest of us who just don't want to fill in long forms to buy uh, to make everyday purchases. And so you can tell from a merchant perspective that the average card abandonment rates online are about 80 to 85 percent. And they've actually increased every single year instead of decreasing. Um, so people are voting with their feet and just leaving uh, when there's too much friction at checkout. So we solve all of those problems. And uh, so how does the technology work? Uh, yes, so we sit as a third party, so uh, it's like, uh, our tech is loaded onto uh, partner websites. And the first time somebody uses, uh, clicks a button that says fast checkout, uh, up opens a conversion optimized checkout form, a nice uh, quick checkout form for people to put in their email, their name, their phone, uh, delivery address, and credit card information. And it, they buy whatever they wanted to buy. Um, once they've done that once, they now have one-click checkout any website that has our fast checkout button. And that's because we sit as a third-party intermediary. Yeah, so uh, interestingly enough, uh, your co-founder is Uber Money's Alison Barr. Yes, oh, you, you, met her, yep. you met her on Twitter? Yes, indeed. Yeah. So uh, how did that work? Uh, well, I, uh, I arrived in uh, San Francisco in June uh, last year, and I really didn't know too many people. And I uh, wanted to build networks. Uh, Alison's 
you know, prominent on Twitter here, but she's a, you know, very, very intelligent um, lady with some, some great views of the world. And she was working in Uber's money, money team, which is, uh, you know, financial services sort of underpin the Uber business now. And it's a very significant money business. And uh, yeah, and she's an angel investor. So I, whilst I wasn't raising money, I knew that she obviously had a propensity for startups. And I reached out and asked to meet for coffee. And, uh, and so we did. And I told her what we were building. And she said that she uh, had written a thesis called Frictionless Finance. And it was her view in the, of the world, which aligned very closely with exactly what you know, I was building and what we're building last now. And she asked to invest in the company and wanted to introduce me to some uh, venture capitalists. Uh, the first investor she introduced me to was one of the world's best fintech investors, Jan Hammer who, of Index Ventures, who he, he lives in London, but um, obviously travels a lot. And uh, I met him for coffee on, on Labor Day or for breakfast on Labor Day in September last year. And he made me an offer on the spot to invest and, um, and, and lead our pre-seed round. So uh, Index led our two and a half million dollar pre-seed round in September last year, which closed in October. And uh, I went back to Allison and I said, Jan, Jan invested and, and Allison's a, a very big fan of Jan. I said, uh, well, are you in? And she said, yes, I'm in. And uh, she said, I already told you I'd invest. And I said, no, I don't want you to invest. I want you to come help build the company. And, you know, after five years at Uber and she grew, you know, she was there from Uber's growth of 2,000 employees to 26,000 employees. And, and the beast is now she, uh, you know, what we're doing has huge, huge scale and huge impact for 5.1 billion consumers. And um, so she, yeah, she, she decided to leave Uber and come help build fast. So she's with you now and she's moved away from Uber. That's quite amazing. That's quite amazing. Correct. Yeah. You went to San Francisco. Uh, so what are the differences between running a tech venture in the US versus a tech venture in Australia? Largest scale, I, you know, I think is the first one. Uh, you know, the America has a population, you know, 15, 16 times the size of Australia at first, but and the capital markets sort of represent that same um, type of scale. Uh, and the startup ecosystem here is more mature than Australia's. So, you know, there's one, there's a lot more capital available but it's also, you know, the capital is, is more readily available for earlier stage startups. Australia prefers to de-risk, you know, opportunity further uh, or invest in lower risk opportunities uh, than early stage. Uh, so that's probably the biggest difference. This, the second thing is, uh, and, and actually arguably the biggest um, difference here is the ecosystem. So there is an incredible uh, and incredibly dense ecosystem of talent here right you imagine almost every you know or the vast majority of the world's largest tech companies have come from a very small radius here and so the, all the the staff of those companies who all had stock in these companies have made a lot of money they all became angel investors or found, founded their own companies and there's this incredible wealth of knowledge uh, amongst the sector here it's also a really sophisticated market in terms of startup employees. You know, typically the salespeople or admin managers, you know, of, of tech companies or office managers or anything else typically understands how startup, understand how startups work, uh, the different uh, stages that startups go through, different funding milestones, different revenue targets. They understand that better than a lot of Australian founders just because it's a very sophisticated startup market here. Uh, so this, this ecosystem is kind of unparalleled just from experience. Um, Australia just hasn't had the density of wins and of large tech companies and, and exits and startups that have you know sold for billions of dollars uh, that that you have here. So we just don't have that depth of experience in our market. And uh, and of course it's in San Francisco, so it's everywhere, isn't it? Because it's near Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. So San Francisco is in the heart of Silicon Valley. That's right. Yeah. 
And so, uh, as well as that, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have trouble then finding staff and talent for your company in that in that sort of ecosystem. Uh, well, it's a it's a two sided. Uh, so, you know, in November last year, two people were now. 27, 28 people. So um, we've grown very quickly. That time, it is one of the most competitive um, job markets world uh, you know, for, for, for tech workers, uh, especially engineers. Uh, you know, engineers are like, you know, <laughs> basically run this town and command, you know, exceptionally high um, comp and packed salaries. And it's uh, just very competitive to buying for like great engineers. And so, you know, I find we find ourselves often literally pitching individual engineers to join our team much harder uh, than we would pitch to investors to invest in a company. Um, it really, uh, it's, it's a very extreme and, and unusual place, but it's also the magic of, of the place. Uh, so yeah, so whilst there's um, a lot of experienced talent here, it's, uh, it's in high demand. So where do you see fast developing from here? I mean, you've been going for about a year. So how do you see it developing? Yeah, you know, the next year is about, uh, you know, distribution of our button to as many websites as possible. So as many consumers as possible can check out in one click. Uh, that's our goal. You know, uh, we have, uh, you know, a soft target of doing uh, a billion in annualized GMV or sort of top line revenue run running through the um, product, uh, top line sales rather running through the product uh, by the end of the year. So by December this year. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we want to keep making it easy as many consumers as possible to use fast and you know there's 5.1 billion internet users around the world and growing and uh you know our goal is to serve all of them to actually create frictionless e-commerce correct yeah and uh finally what, what does it take to keep up business morale during a global pandemic yeah you know i i joke often that uh we've been so busy that i don't think our team realized they're working from home yet you know it, uh but I do think that there is something to that. Um, if you were so many cats watching Netflix all day and, uh, you know, not didn't have anything to do, I think that would be a fairly morale draining time. Uh, I think keeping busy is important. Um, but, you know, we're really tight knit. We have, we have Zoom lunches, virtual lunches, virtual, you know, coffee times. Uh, you know, free, we, I meet with every team every single day uh, in the morning. We have, uh, you know, we have, a happy hour and all hands and we have a lot of activity and social activity between uh, between the team uh as but you know we do just have a lot of work on as well and i think um having really good communication is absolutely key so uh what are the big lessons you've learned from uh running your company you know you've got to run fast no pun intended uh but it but it really is the truth you know uh the, the secret source of startups is that they can just run faster than than corporates can they can you know they're much more agile uh they can get a lot done in, in a lot shorter amount of time uh they've got less bureaucracy less red tape you know less just less friction in that process so you know the biggest uh, you know thing we are renowned for is you know working at a pace that even other startups just don't work at um you know we ha we get a lot done we have we're very extremely ambitious and and working at, at the pace we work at means that we can unlock a lot of value a lot faster so um yeah that you know just getting through more activity than 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 others and and good activity is key well dom we'll be watching fast with a lot of attention and uh, thank you very much for your time Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to BIS Oxford Economics Chief Economist in Australia, Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, the latest payroll figures are up 0.2% and uh, they indicate that the effects of the lockdowns might have uh, been 
going away in terms of jobs market. Uh, what's your view about it now that uh, Victoria is coming back and New South Wales back? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we definitely expect that that's going to see an improvement in the data. People are able to get back to work. Uh, and so that'll come through first off on the payrolls data. That's the really high frequency stuff that we get from the ABS. It's very, very timely. And eventually it's going to get into the official labour market data that we get as well. But there's going to be a bit of a delay with that one. The way the survey is structured when they ask the questions as well means that it's likely to be, we should see some impact in November, but it's really going to be the data we get in December, which will refer to November, where we start to see the full impact, because that's the point in time where the reopening of Victoria will be picked up and New South Wales being fully up and running as well but not a surprise that things are getting better we expected that and it's great to see that it's happening but uh, the issue too is that there's there's lots of reports of job shortages at the moment with uh, uh, hospitality industries can't get anyone commonwealth bank can't get anyone uh, so so our company's actually in a position to pick up workers it's yeah it's a bit of a balancing act and it's different in different sectors and you also have to so to keep in mind, there's always, particularly around hospitality, where they've been shut down, obviously one of the most impacted sectors by the lockdowns, uh, there's always a little bit of frictional unemployment where the business might want to open up, get fully up and running right now if they can, but it just takes time to find people and to get them in. So that's one aspect to this. Another aspect to it, particularly affecting hospitality, that we were seeing before the lockdowns and we're, you know, we're now seeing it re-emerge at this point is that that's a sector that's disproportionately quite reliant on overseas workers. So some of the international students, the uh, the temporary visitors, the working holidays, the, that group of people, typically younger workers, they would often find a part-time job in hospitality. Uh, we've just got fewer of those people in the country right now, obviously, with the closed border. So for that sector in particular, it's a bit challenging. The CBA, it's a little bit different. They, they don't normally rely on the students to fill their roles, uh, particularly. But for them, what we're seeing, and for finance more broadly, it's one of the sectors that's done particularly well through the pandemic. We've obviously seen a really strong response from the housing market, lots of mortgages being written, lots of activity generally in financial services. So for them, it's a sort of good old-fashioned strong demand, looking for labour, and, uh, and it's that kind of uh, demand-supply balance coming through. So different reasons for different parts of the economy. But um, yeah, there are some challenges around getting people in. But then in other sectors, not so much. And one thing for me that I'm really interested to look at and see is how the economy, how people respond to these different uh, demands for labour. Do they move from a sector that they might be in where perhaps demand's a bit weaker into sectors where it's stronger? How easy is it for them to do that? And of course, what happens with the border? How does that reopening look and work and, and what does that mean for workers being able to come into the country? Well, that's another interesting issue. I mean, in terms of closed borders, nationally, the tech industry is looking out for skilled workers as well, and they tend to come from overseas. And of course, they can't come in. So that's going to affect the tech industry as well. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a number of sectors that would typically um, take in at least some of their uh, their workforce from overseas, so tech, but also construction, financial services, uh, professional services. There, there's quite a few. Um, and also, they're not necessarily um, what we would typically class as high-skilled. There's also agriculture, uh, you know, fruit pickers and, and other workers like that. We saw last year, and we've seen actually all through the lockdown, that there's been calls to try and make it easier for that group of workers to come back through. So there's a number of different parts of the economy that um, will often draw from overseas for their workforce, but it's harder to do that right now. And so they're um, perhaps feeling the, the pinch in terms of getting people in. 
And that's why, yeah, the reopening of the border is going to be so critical for restarting that normal service, if you like, through the labour market and, and how we usually fill some of those gaps. And, and that's what uh, I say it's interesting uh, to observe in some for some skills, for some types of roles. We don't have enough people in the country to fill the, the gaps that we've got in the labour market. For other types of roles, though, and for other jobs, we've got more than enough people in country. And, and so that's where you can end up with what we had, sorry, pre-Delta, which was some businesses saying they couldn't get the staff they needed and it was a constraint for them. And yet we had more people were registered as unemployed than we had pre-COVID. And we had a, um, an unemployment rate that was still a bit elevated compared to pre-COVID. So you've got this, this mismatch in the labour market, right? Some people who want a job, but can't find one that fits for them. And you've got other businesses saying, no, I can't find the workers I need. How we adjust to that, how the economy adjusts, how we can, how many of this group of workers that are looking for work, can they go into these jobs that are there? And what does the reopening of the border look like? When does it happen? And does, is that the release valve for those missing workers, if you like, that we would normally have in country because we normally have migrants coming in? Well, that's fascinating stuff because it would suggest that we're still some way off from reopening our borders right around Australia, where all the states open up to each other and where our international borders open. So it means that there's going to be a whole lot of uncertainty about the jobs figures moving forward. Would you agree with that? It's a, no, it's certainly, I think um, all economists, uh, or at least most of the ones I've spoken to, we're all expecting it to be a bit of a bumpy recovery no one's expecting this to be a sort of smooth glide path back to pre-covid normal but I, I, I think the other sort of thing to keep in mind is everything with the pandemic is moving really quickly we sort of go from things are fine into sort of full-on lockdowns in a matter of weeks and and we're now coming out and we sort of almost feel like we've gone from full lockdown to quite a lot of easing in, in not a you know not a, a short a long amount of time it's been just a few weeks to go from lockdowns to to things getting uh, fairly normal fairly quickly labor markets these adjustments processes they always take time they take more than weeks to happen so um, I was always anticipating that the back end of 2021 and early 2022 we would have these bumps these frictions in the economy as we sort of got back towards normal conditions as things eased as people got more comfortable as as the borders internally first of all were reopening and people could move around a bit more and then internationally so yeah, the idea that um, it's not just a click your fingers and back to where we were. Absolutely. It, for me, it's how long does it take us to to get back to that sort of pre-COVID normal? What does that look like? Do the migrants come back through and and, and how do people move around the domestic labour market? But it was never going to be a, an instant fix, unfortunately. It was always going to be a, a little bit rocky. And I think that's what we're starting to see already. So it not, won't be quite be a V-shaped recovery, more like a W-shape. Well, I think it depends on how big the blips are. It could look like a V overall in as much as it, if you smooth it out, it'll look like that. But if you're an individual business, it could well be a little bit W. You, you get going again, and that's great. And then you hit a bit of a, a capacity constraint, and that sort of slows you for a bit. And then you get going again because you perhaps resolve that issue, and then maybe something else comes up down the line. So for individual businesses, it could well feel a bit jagged. But when we look overall at the economy, there will be lumps and bumps. It's just how big are the bumps as to whether or not we officially think it's a V or a W. But if you're an individual business working through this, it's going to feel uh, difficult at times and, and good at times. And I think that that's inevitable. That would also suggest, though, that businesses mightn't have that, mightn't be that confident in putting up, putting up workers, although the NAB survey shows business confidence is right. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, no, I think in general, what businesses have, we saw last time, and I think a number of business owners have got this in their heads for this time, that actually, when we use restrictions, when people can get out there, they, they're willing to do so, they want to go out and spend, we all want some normality, I think that's the overriding observation from the first half of 21, or even the back a uh, little bit of 2020, once Victoria opened up, and we really got going with recovery. So for businesses, even if uh, they can see these um, uh, bumps in the road, I think the bumps are going to be more around potentially capacity constraints for many businesses. And so if you're worried about maybe in three months, I won't have the, the staff I need. Maybe you actually try and get them in now um, so that you can uh, mitigate that as much as possible. So I think that the bumps, um, it does look for many businesses in some sectors, it's going to be more about I don't have the workers I need rather than worrying about is the demand going to be there. So it's a it's a bump in as much as I can't do as much as I might want to rather than a bump being there's nobody coming to my business to, to use my services, whatever they may be. OK, so what does that mean for the job figures? I mean, they're, they're around 4.5 now. So where will it go to? Well, that's a good question. And um, of course, at the moment, that unemployment rate is being distorted by the fact that what the one that we're measuring right now. Um, it's been distorted by the fact that if you're on, if you're receiving a job seeker payment, you don't have to work, look for work. If you're in New South Wales or Victoria in the lockdown zones, um, as that uh, requirement to look for work is reintroduced, we could well see that unemployment rate go back up. So, as I said, it's you know finding a job is not something usually that happens straight away. It can take a bit of time, even if it's just a matter of weeks. So, we could well see some people still claiming job seeker, who now we actually count as unemployed. So I'm, I'm not going to be surprised at all if we get the unemployment rate going back up um, to, you know, round about where it was maybe in, in June time before we uh, went into lockdown on the East Coast. So that would be around about 5% maybe. And then for it to improve after that. Now, it could be better than that. We could actually see no change in that a lot of people who have to go and look for a job actually find one and we just count them as employed. That would be fantastic. I mean, we could get more disruption. It could take a little bit longer until we get more people counted as unemployed for a while. I think either way, the unemployment rate is not really telling us actually that much about the health of the economy right now because it's being affected by these really unique circumstances. I think for me, what I'm much more looking at is total number of hours worked is the best single metric from the labour market. I'm also looking at the participation rate, how many people are coming back into the labour force, and either because they've got a job or because they're looking for work. That's a much better indicator of the health of what of the economy of, of what's going on. So the unemployment rate, I mean, I'll, I'll look at it, it's there. But um, you've got to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt right now in terms of what it can tell you. 
And in terms of the RBA, no, no wonder they're waiting till 2024 with so much uncertainty. Well, it, yes, although I have to say I'm, I'm definitely in the camp of economists that think that it, they'll be going before then. I, I think the economy is in a healthier, better position. I think the, the fiscal policy settings are still pretty supportive and we've got some extra supports coming through now announced by the state government. We could well get some more when we get to the next federal budget as well. So I think actually um, they're, they're probably going to have to move before then. Some of the inflation trends, some a lot of it's transitory and I wouldn't expect them to be responding to fuel price moves, for instance. They can't do anything about that. But um, I do think that perhaps we'll see a, a stronger recovery in the labour market than they're anticipating. It'll get into wages and then they'll have to go a bit earlier. But I, I don't think they'll be anywhere near as early as some of the other central banks. I think next year is not on the cards for a cash rate rise. Probably QE tapering, yes, but not a cash rate rise. Well, the uh, inflation data, I mean, I question some of that. I don't know how much of it is actually inflation and how much is supply chain issues. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, the inflation series, what we're measuring is just what happens to prices, but why it happens is the key question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the fuel price moves, are, that's not so much supply chain, but there is a lot of other supply chain disruption coming through. We can see that in uh, prices of some of the um, electronics goods, for instance, actually uh, you know, halting their general downward trend. And that's not really anything to do with fundamentals. That is to do with issues around moving goods from A to B and, and what's happening in other parts of the world that really reflect what's happening here. So that's the kind of price trends I'm expecting the RBA to look through because they can't have any control over that. It doesn't really say what's anything about what's happening here. It's a, a global issue and that's not something they'll respond to. So, yeah, I don't think that we'll see a response next year because a lot of the inflation that we're going to get it over the next few months will come from those kind of factors rather than domestic fundamentals. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. That's quite illuminating. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia has made a $2 billion pledge to the United Nations Climate Summit in a promise to do its part to limit the rise in global temperatures, as activist groups call on the country to spend eight times as much to honour its obligations. Prime Minister Scott Morrison promised the highest spending in a formal statement that also said Australian emissions will fall by 35% by 2030 hardening his language on a goal that he has described as a forecast rather than a target. The statement tells other leaders to expect Australia would reach the 35% goal by 2030, even as Mr Morrison makes no formal change to the existing official target of 26 to 28% by that year on 2005 level. He made no mention of the official target in his statement and spoke only of the 35% goal for 2030 and his commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. The pledge is an increase in Australia's formal commitment to a US $100 billion, that's Aussie $132 billion, annual climate finance scheme for developing countries that was first promised by the world's wealthier nations at a COP summit in South Africa in 2011. Activist group Avars, which organised protests around the G20 summit last weekend, estimated Australia should commit at least $3.4 billion a year as a share of the annual climate fund. That is eight times the government's new pledge, which amounts to $400 million each year. And Scott Morrison has taken his technology-driven climate pitch to the world, presenting it as a solution to the policy gap between developed and developing nations, which is stopping universal global action on global warming. Speaking at a COP26 global summit in Glasgow, the Prime Minister said developing affordable and scalable low emissions technology was the only realistic mechanism for major emitters, such as India, to come on board. The world is split over climate action, with a bloc comprising China, India, Russia and Brazil taking a lead in stymieing any meaningful consensus at the G20 leaders' meeting in Rome over the weekend. 
Of those nations, only India has its leader, Narendra Modi, at Glasgow. He committed India to net zero emissions by 2070. Mr Morrison said it was unrealistic and naive to expect all nations to move at the same pace using the same methodology. His technology plan has been slammed at home for being light on detail and heavy on hope. He told the UN conference the requisite technology would materialise. But the country's leading climate technology experts have warned the Australian government not to expect future technology to solve its climate change problems, saying it must develop a policy-driven approach to let existing technology drive down fossil fuel usage now. Aitan Lenko, chairman of the climate change think tank Beyond Zero Emissions, said what the climate tech investment community needed from the government was policy designed to hasten the uptake of renewable technology, not a document simply stating that technology would magically solve the problem. An electric vehicle charging infrastructure has been elevated by the Morrison government as a key net zero enabling technology, two and a half years after the Prime Minister mocked EVs as incapable of towing trailers, boats or reaching a family's favourite camping spot. Stunned by the speed in which global car makers are racing towards mass EV production, the government now accepts that instead of ending the weekend, as Morrison famously claimed during the 2019 election campaign, electric vehicles will reach cost parity with internal combustion engines within a few years. Ford, GM and a raft of startups such as Rivian have already started bringing large Ute-style EVs to the market. Some are capable of towing over large distances. In a second annual low emissions technology statement released in Glasgow late on Tuesday night, the government also identified the need to develop digital grids to manage the surging supply of solar and wind power into the national electricity grid. The priority list, which is the heart of Energy Emissions Reduction Minister Angus Taylor's technology not taxes approach to climate change, for the first time identified the use of seaweed to reduce cattle methane emissions and the need for low polluting concrete. The new priorities add to last year's inaugural list, which included developing clean hydrogen, cheaper energy storage, low emission steel and aluminium, carbon capture and storage and soil carbon. Last week, when the government released its 2050 net zero plan, it added so-called ultra-low-cost solar to the priority list. And Business Council of Australia President Tim Reid has warned that Australia will lose the business of its largest trading partners if it does not commit to its plan to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and diversify its export base away from carbon-intensive industries. Speaking at the Impact X Sydney Summit on creating a pathway to net zero, Mr Freed freely admitted the BCA's 130-member companies are our nation's largest polluters and said individual businesses that do not get on board with cut emissions could be locked out of capital markets. Mr Reid said 14 of Australia's top 20 trading partners, representing 83% of the nation's export base, had a net zero target, meaning Australia's future prosperity was at risk without a plan to develop renewable energy export industries like hydrogen. And this week's UN Climate Summit in Glasgow is helping put a rocket under the global market for carbon credits, which have surged to record levels. Last Friday alone, as world leaders began making their way to Scotland, prices for carbon credits leapt 10%. While the global market for carbon credits is still small compared with equity and bond markets, its growth this year has been dramatic. A benchmark price for carbon credits, known as CBLGEO, has galloped from about US 75 since last October to US $7.50 at the end of last month. And the price will keep rising because of the imbalance between supply and demand. Promises made by the world's 20 largest oil and gas companies to offset their fossil fuel pollution will require about 3 billion tonnes in carbon credit offsets a year, compared with the current global inventory of $500 million in credits. In, in addition, the market currently generates just 300 million credits a year via carbon capture and storage. An airline such as Delta in the US needs to offset about 50 million tonnes a year. 
and the Reserve Bank of Australia bowed to market pressure by abandoning a bond yield target and signalling it's open to raising interest rates earlier than its previous 2024 guidance following a quickening of inflation. Australia's Reserve Bank has kept the nation's cash rate at the record low of 0.1% for the 12th month in a row. The central bank has also dumped one of its key stimulus measures known as yield curve control, which was introduced in March 2020, shortly after the COVID-19 pandemic struck. It involved the RBA buying billions of dollars in Australian government three-year bonds to artificially drive its yield, or return, down to 0.1%. The RBA has opened up the possibility that record 0.1% cash rate could rise in late 2023, earlier than expected. But market pricing for hikes in 2022 is a complete overreaction to inflation data, Governor Philip Lowe said in a surprise press conference late on Tuesday. And such an eventuality was extremely unlikely, despite underlying inflation exceeding the RBA's expectations two years ahead of forecasts. But we cannot reasonably rule out a rate hike as early as next year. And pubs, shops, recruitment agencies and construction firms could play a critical role helping the economy hit net zero emissions by purchasing power from an energy retailer which offsets their usage. Australia's 2.4 million small to medium enterprises emit about 146.5 million tonnes of the nation's carbon emissions annually. However, they have not entered into green power purchasing, which about half of the country's 80 top emitting ASX 200 companies have in setting net zero or carbon neutral goals. Some of the nation's biggest brands, such as Woolworths, Coles and Telstra, have committed to switching 100% renewable electricity by 2025. Others have been accused of greenwashing by adopting targets but not setting plans. New figures from data agency Geographia found small businesses could have an outsized impact on Australia's total carbon emissions if, like many large companies, they commit to reducing their carbon footprint year on year. The research found an average pub, tavern or or bar emits about 11.6 tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions a year, with more than a third of this coming from their electricity usage. If a pub switched their energy provider to a retailer that carbon offset their energy usage, they could reduce their carbon footprint by about 34% immediately. Commissioned by online electricity retailer PowerShop, the data found if every pub, tavern or bar made the change, it could be equivalent to taking more than 6,800 cars off the road each year. Of the four key sectors studied, the construction industry was the largest annual emitter, 76%, followed by retail, 11.9%, professional services, 6.7%, and accommodation hospitality, 5.7%, making up a total of 6.6 million tonnes emitted. The carbon footprint of these sectors was broken down by five key emissions areas, materials, electricity, labour, transport, and other utilities like water and gas. Research found if the four sectors signed up to an electricity plan that was 100% carbon offset, it would be the equivalent of taking 770,834 cars off the road. If they offset 100% of their total emissions from materials, electricity, other utilities, labour and transport, it would be the equivalent of 3.98 million cars off the road each year. And Westpac has reported cash profit of $5.35 billion in the 2021 financial year and announced a $3.5 billion off-market buyback following the lead of the other major banks. While its cash profit fell short of expectations of $5.42 billion, it was twice as much as a year ago. Statutory net profit rose 138% to $5.46 billion. However, investors dumped the stock after a poor margin performance by its key home lending business and emerging scepticism that the bank will achieve its much-trumpeted $8 billion cost base in 2024. And Seven West Media has entered into an agreement to acquire Prime Media Group for $121.9 million. The deal is subject to a vote from Prime Media shareholders set to be held in December. The Prime Media Board has indicated it intends to recommend shareholders vote in favour of the proposal. 
and Global, ready to assemble furniture vendor IKEA, has installed four chargers for electric vehicles at each of its outlets in New South Wales and Victoria, the company says. Choosing the right moment for a plug, the Swedish firm said in a statement that its stores in Springvale and Richmond had installed the chargers. In New South Wales, a store at Tempe and Marston Park would soon follow suit. The company announcement comes a day after Prime Minister Scott Morrison left for the Glasgow COP26 Environmental Summit after finalising a somewhat flaky greenhouse gas emissions target for the country. The charging stations are free to use at the moment and have a Type 2 cable, IKEA said, adding that with 56% of Australians considering an EV as their next vehicle, providing chargers was a move meant to cater for future expansion. In coming weeks, EV owners will need to have a Charge Fox account. The app can be downloaded from the App Store or Google Play. And Santos has signed off on its $220 million movement carbon capture and storage project with a go-ahead on what will be the largest carbon storage projects in the world to be announced overnight at the COP26 Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. The Santos board, along with one-third joint venture partner Beach Energy, late Monday took a final investment decision to go ahead with the project. The Moomba CCS project is expected to create about 230 jobs during the construction phase and store about 1.7 million tonnes of carbon dioxide per year in depleted oil and gas reservoirs in South Australia's far north. Santos has been close to making a decision on Moomba CCS for much of this year, but was waiting for CCS projects to be eligible for Australian carbon credit units in order to make it financially viable. With the project now registered for credits with a clean energy regulator, it's all systems go for the globally significant project. And the National Science Agency, CSIRO and Commonwealth Bank have launched a joint project to examine the potential impact of climate change on the finance sector. The public-private partnership will develop a plan to help financial services companies manage and reduce the risks of global warming, with insights from the project to be shared on a digital platform. The independent science-based transition scenarios produced will be made available to other banks and financial institutions including insurance companies, to help them model exposure to climate risks in particular sectors and regions. An iron ore billionaire and our green energy evangelist, Andrew Forrest, has continued his breathtaking spree of renewable hydrogen announcements, this time signing an agreement with the Bamford family to become the biggest supplier of renewable hydrogen in the UK. The multi-pound deal, deliberately timed a day ahead of the Glasgow COP26 climate conference, has been struck with construction giant JCB and its offshoot Rose Hydrogen, who will buy 10% of the renewable hydrogen the forests Fortescue Future Industries plans to produce. Under the partnership, FFI will lead the green hydrogen production and logistics to the UK market. JCB, owned by the billionaire businessman Lord Bamford and Rise, owned and managed by his son Joe Bamford, will manage green hydrogen distribution and the development of custom demand in the UK. It appears to be mostly focused on shifting heavy transport to green hydrogen, including JCB's construction equipment and Joe Bamford's Wright Bus, the UK's biggest bus manufacturing company, which has already produced the world's first hydrogen-powered double-decker bus. And Penfolds has released its most expensive ever bottle of wine, a five-vintage blend that retails for a wallet-scourging $3,500. Named Penfolds G5, the red wine is a blend of five vintages of Penfolds Grange, stretching back to 2010. Only 2,200 bottles of Penfolds G5 will be made available globally, and a 750ml bottle will retail for $3,500. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Damien Morgan and Keel Glass, who founded the startup SafeStay, which provides safety audit inspections for short-stay accommodation in response to the tragedy of short-stay accommodation incidents, including fraud, injury, and even fatalities. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the prospect of the RBA raising interest rates.
In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.